Today's preaching text is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Can I invite you to turn to that passage in your Bibles? Again, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. This is how it reads. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Holy Trinity downtown. Pastor John Dennis here with you on this Sunday morning and welcome all who call Holy Trinity downtown home and those of you who are gathered here today. There's an intriguing claim made by a recent book. And the author's claim is that all the problems of the Protestant, religious, evangelicals are actually a corruption from within. That it is the doing, or really the undoing, of evangelicals themselves, more pointedly. This author argues that the Protestant religious evangelical church has a corruption of a very particular kind, namely a corruption of power. The author's name is Kristen Cobes Dumez, and uh, she has written the book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is a very interesting title because it raises the question of how interchangeable is the American icon of strength, rugged individualism, and manhood with this prophet, this rabbi that walked on the earth some 2,000 years ago who surrendered his life. The subtitle of the book is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. You see, while it's true, most likely, that progressive Christians want to hold on to Jesus, want to hold on to justice, they are willing in this day and age to relinquish some of his truth claims of exclusivity and his sexual ethics. And while that may be true on the left, on the right side, it may be said that nationalistic Christians want Jesus and might. And she goes on to point out a long history of how the evangelical church married with strength and power and in a sense exchanged its soul. The Christians on the right seem happy to leave Jesus at the moment that he begins loving the margins and seem to be trying to gain power. But in reality, both the left and the right are looking for power if we look back at the events of this summer, the cancel culture and some of the rioting from the left wields tremendous power. And the might of the right wields another kind of power as well. All of our minds are filled still with some of the images of the insurrection and the cloaking of the insurrection. In the imagery of Jesus, in the language of piety, in the desire to seem as if it was an extension of Christianity is not an extension of Christianity, it is in reality a corruption of it. Because the seizing of power, the desire for power, is in contradiction with the one most powerful named Jesus who gave himself up for the powerless. 
And while the love of those on the margins from the left seems very much like Jesus's love, the violent terrorism from the left and from the right is unlike Jesus. You see, sometimes what we do is we like a buffet Jesus. We want to pick and choose which parts of Jesus we like. Some of us choose his truth claims, but leave aside his teachings on sexual ethics. Others like his love for the margins, but do not like his truth claims. And so we say, yes, I'll take this part, but not that part. But Jesus rules in truth and in his ethics and in his love and in his power. You could call our sermon today a study in spiritual power. And what I want to do is to just to highlight the nature of the spiritual power in the first century church and think in a way of how it judges or contrasts with the tendency towards power today and how it exposes some of my flaws, some of our flaws, some of the flaws of North American spirituality. You see in the gospel, humility is a power, not haughtiness. And in the gospel, the greatest gifts of God are free. They cannot be purchased or secured. And power comes from love for God, not from love for self. Narcissism is a negative, not a positive, when seen through the eyes of the gospel. So to God be the glory, what we are going to learn today, the main truth I want to show you, is that God's greatest gifts are given for free. They're free to the humble, not to the haughty, to the repentant, and not to the rich. Will you bow with me in prayer as we begin? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the power that Jesus gave up so that we might become part of your kingdom. And I ask that you would speak through us, through me today. As we look at your word once again, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A study in spiritual power. And so all I want to do today is show you a number of the characteristics of the first century church as they manifested a kind of spiritual power that really could be contrasted with the, the North American church today and, and with many of us. And the first characteristic that I want to show you today is that is that of weakness in the face of violent strength. Let me say that again. Weakness in the face of violent strength. You see, today, so often in the church, we emphasize numerical strength, physical strength. What they emphasize is weakness, which is so countercultural. This is verses one to four, which announce a kind of new chapter in the history of the New Testament church. And you can look at it there. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. This is the, the author Luke is writing here. And he's telling the story in the gospel of Luke itself, of Jesus's ministry and how he came in the power of the spirit, proclaimed the kingdom and healed many people and how that grew regionally from Jerusalem and from Galilee. In the book of Acts, which is the second volume of Luke's work, what he begins to do is show how Jesus is still moving. He's still active, even though he ascends into heaven, he gives the Holy Spirit, who then begins to 
work through the proclamation of the gospel through the apostles and also begins to spread the ministry geographically. Acts 1.8 gives his kind of thesis statement that you will receive power, what? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that's the study in spiritual power, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. At eight, chapter eight, verse one, a very large transition is happening because the, the movement of the gospel is moving from the apostles to the general people. It's moving from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. And it's moving from Peter and John to somebody new whose name is Saul, who will become the apostle Paul and will write nearly half of the New Testament. So we meet Saul for the first time, or Paul, in verse one, where it says, and Saul approved of his execution, that is the execution of Stephen, this is, there's tremendous sadness in these verses. Listen, and there rose on that day a great persecution, not a small persecution, but a great one against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. It is as if an enormous stone has been thrown into the lake of Christianity and there are waves of persecution that move out, though, in a way that the gospel actually continues to spread. They are lamenting. And lamenting, let me tell you, friends, is the song of the weak. Lamenting is the song of the marginalized. Lamenting is the song of those who don't have power on their side, and so they must appeal to God. Lamenting is the song of those who seek for greater justice in this world and are being persecuted. Verse two says, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. This is weakness showing through in the face of violent strength. Listen to what it says. But Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. If John Wayne, was the picture of what the Christian life looked like then. <laughs> Look how helpless they are. John Wayne would have pulled out a gun. John Wayne would have defended himself. I would, wanted to, would have wanted to defend myself. And yet the first century church is weak enough to give their lives. Imagine Stephen in the previous chapter when people pick up stones and begin to throw them. What would you have done? I know what I would have done. I would have stormed those who are beginning to throw stones at me. I would have called out for my rights. I would have told them that what they are doing is wrong. I would have bullied the abusers back. But Stephen doesn't do this. In chapter 7, verse 59, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. He falls to the ground. He's ready to die. And he says these unbelievable words, words of weakness, apparent physical weakness that show tremendous spiritual fortitude and strength. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You see, what looks like weakness is actually strength. What, what looks like weakness of the Lord Jesus crucified upon a cross is the strength of the Son of God 
taking our judgment upon himself and giving himself, letting his power be poured out on our behalf. First of all, the first characteristic of the New Testament church is that it has a kind of weakness, not strength. We call this value the irony of weakness. This is one of our seven values because the church seems to be weak. Paul calls it a vessel, a a cracked vessel, but it has a treasure that is within it. We sang earlier, what patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes what? Who? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. You see, Stephen was called tenderly home. He's called home tenderly by the Father, and each of us will one day be called tenderly home. And as Jesus stood up to receive Jesus, there's a day coming when he will stand up to receive you, but you and I should not gamble and throw away the weakness that is so much a part of what it means to be a Christian. Are you willing to be weak, Holy Trinity? Acts 8, 1 to 3 calls you to that. Secondly, as it relates to this study in spiritual power, we see not only weakness before violent strength, but we also see a kind of triumph before persecution. They keep preaching the word in a way that parallels the life and the work of Jesus. Look at verses 4 to 8. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, what's interesting here to me is that it's not the apostles. The apostles didn't leave Jerusalem. Everybody else left and everybody else is preaching the gospel. Oh, for HTC downtown to be the kind of place. Lord, Lord, give us strength for the future to preach the gospel to many. Listen to what what, what it says. Is it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. This is interesting because in Acts 6, 1 to 7, the apostles say, hey, it's not for us to serve tables, so let's get some people to serve tables. And they found seven men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and said, you guys wait on the tables. Well, the first two that are named are, are Stephen, and the second one is Philip. Stephen preaches the very next sermon. Philip is the one who's preaching uh, in this little section here. So it's, it's, not, it's true that the church has to guard Ministry of compassion to those who are the most needy, in that case it was the widows, but also must keep prayer and word central. That is actually where the spiritual power flows from. So Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, this is verse five, and proclaimed to them the Christ. And then it says, and the crowds, this is what happened with Jesus as well, as well, with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and the sounds that he, he, sorry, and the signs that he did, listen to this, this is uncanny. Oh, for this kind of spiritual power, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Can you imagine that scene, friends? 
Can you imagine the kind of spiritual power in the midst of persecution? They have the ability to proclaim and not only to proclaim, but people are being healed. It says, so there was, I love this little sentence right at the end of verse eight, kind of almost like a British understatement. So there was much joy in that city. Uh, The persecution is coming, but they are filled with joy. Holy Trinity, what kind of people do we want to be? I want us to be this kind of people. Imagine that day when we could say, and so there was much joy in that city, even as there was in Jerusalem. May that day come someday. May the day come when people look back and they say there was great joy in that city of Chicago when Jesus is proclaimed, when the weak are ministered to, when violence is quelled, when the sick and the paralyzed were healed. I I do believe that God uses miraculous healing in very special circumstances today. Um, But I also believe that he uses many of you, medical professionals to heal. Um, People like Dr. Rich Wondering, who uh, is the head of the medical ICU at Northwestern. All of you who were on the front lines before Shirley Ryan Ability Lab got their new fabulous facilities when it was uh, just at, still at their old location. Uh, I had a chance to visit someone from the congregation who was doing rehab and he was in a terrible situation. This young man was autistic. I think he was probably about 17 years old at the time and somehow he uh, was, he jumped out of a three-story window. He broke his femur, his tibia, t- tibia, and his fibula. All three of his leg bones were broken. And they didn't know if he'd ever walk again. Uh, and he couldn't express himself. And so one day I went to visit his mom and visit him at uh, what was then called um, Chicago Rehabilitation Institute before it was Shirley Ryan um, Ability Lab. And the day that I went to go visit him, his legs had begun begun to heal. And the the physician's assistant who was there said to me, do you want to see him take his first step? And so here's this little guy with a little walker and he... His legs had been shattered and he'd been in months of recovery. They didn't know if he'd ever walk again. And here he goes and he takes this first step. And I, let me tell you, friends, there was joy in the city on that day. This is a study in what spiritual power looks like. It is weakness, not physical strength. And it is triumph in the face of opposition and challenges, even preaching in persecution. Verses one to three, verses four to eight. And then a long section, I wanna show you a third characteristic here in verses nine through 21, which is really the heart of the passage. This third characteristic here of the New Testament church, you might call humility and not arrogance. And all of us, I think, can acknowledge that it seems like so much arrogance, so much bluster, so much 
uh, vile language has been inserted into our civil discourse that it seems as if it is beginning to tear us apart. And what, what Peter and John call this man, Simon Magus, to in this passage is a tremendous humility that gets our hearts right with God. Humility is a characteristic of the first century church as you study its power. Acts chapter 8, verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Seems very much like our culture today. He's strutting his stuff. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, listen to this, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's kind of a long title, right? Or a long name. But how do you respond to this? They, it, look at what it says. It says, verse 11, they paid attention to him because for a long time they, he had amazed them with his magic. And, uh, and then it says, when, when they believed Philip as he preached good news. So he hears this guy, Simon Magus, Magus has all of these spiritual or, or, or these uh, magical powers that he is showing before the people. But he actually hears the gospel and it seems as if there's some kind of change that comes into his life. Listen, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. And that is the sign that we take to show that we have understood who Jesus is and that we want to surrender our lives to his kingdom. Baptism is this kind of outward sign that shows an inward reality and says to the world that I have been changed by the person of who Jesus is. So Simon does this. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. But then he goes a bit astray. It says, in seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So he seems to be saved, but he's viewing it as this kind of transactional relationship. Because when he sees Peter and John laying their hands on people who are receiving the Holy Spirit, he's overawed by their power. Listen to what he says, or what Luke says. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen, that is, the Spirit had not yet fallen on them. And notice that the Spirit is called he here, not it, because he's a person. But they had, they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and, and these remarkable words, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is promised to the disciples, promised to the first century church, promised to the people of God. All who call upon the name of the Lord are given the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This man thinks he can buy the gifts of God. This man thinks he can buy the grace of God. This man thinks he can buy the spiritual power of God that comes from the Spirit himself, that comes from time in the closet, weeping before the Lord. 
Peter said to him, listen to this, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain, listen, the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Look, what he's saying is the Spirit's a gift. If someone comes to you and presents you with a gift, do you turn around and say, pull out your wallet and say, let me pay you for this? The study in spiritual power of the first century church says that all of the greatest gifts of God are given for free, <laughs> that you cannot purchase them. There's that great place in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55, where uh, the, the prophet says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, Come and buy and eat and come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. That is not to say that there is no price to eat at the table of salvation. That is not to say that there is no price that must be paid to drink the wine of forgiveness. But it is to say that God has already paid the price for you. You can't buy your salvation. You can't buy it because Jesus already bought it. You can't buy the Holy Spirit because Jesus has already offered him to you for free by faith. As we sang a little bit earlier, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. The idea here is that God's gifts are a lavish kindness that you do not deserve. What riches of kindness he lavished on us and then what? His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. What an insult. When the infinite value of the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, has already paid for something, for Simon to somehow think a few silver coins could somehow purchase that which was already free. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. His mercy is like an ocean that covers all of our needs, and there's no way we can repay him. The corruption of the modern church is that we try to buy things that were, were transactional. We're willing to try to use this kind of John Wayne strength today. What did the apostles say? As for us, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That is where spiritual, spiritual power comes from, from weakness, not physical strength. It's triumph in preaching and proclamation, even in persecution. And here, what we're seeing is it comes through humility, not arrogance, that tries to buy things. The last characteristic that I want to show you from the text is that in this study of spiritual strength is that spiritual strength comes from repentance, not from bitterness. And, and there's a contrast here in this last little section. And so... Uh, Peter says to Simon, says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Repentance 
is a comes from the Greek word that really means to change your mind that leads to a change of actions. And so what he's saying here is, Simon, change your mind about your actions. Change your mind about how spiritual power is acquired. Change your mind about who Jesus is. Change your mind about your own obedience. Change your mind about the sin that you're clinging to. And then listen, verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I don't know if anyone feels like they are simply bound by iniquity, bound by uh, the challenges of your own sinfulness that you can't get free. I don't know if anyone feels like you have this, what's called here the gall of bitterness, that when you look at other people's lives, you cannot help but to feel cheated, cannot help but to feel as if God is robbing you of something. Simon was not content with the power that he had. He wanted more. And Peter identifies it as a a kind of bitterness, which is like a deep root inside of somebody. And Simon says, prays and says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, Simon Magus was trying to acquire power for himself. Jesus and John Wayne don't fit in the same movie because you cannot buy the love of God. You cannot buy the grace of God. You cannot buy the forgiveness of God. You cannot buy the power of God because the greatest gifts of God are freely given so that he might receive grace. Because Jesus has already paid the price. There's a spot where Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, talks about this idea of repentance. And she's talking about a, a, a moment where there was significant sin in her local church. Um, and she writes this about a, a repentance process that she was learning about. She says, repentance always bears the fruit of giving glory to God. Repentance is not an end point, it's a launching pad. We repent unto holiness and repentance. We grow into Christ-likeness. Part of what God is calling you to is greater humility, calling me to against the arrogance that is so off-putting in our culture today that comes with it, the arrogance comes with this kind of bitterness to it. And so... I want to call you Holy Trinity to the weakness, to the humility, to the repentance that is spoken of here. And you see the result right at the end. It says, now when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in the many villages of the Samaritans. We live in a day that has confused worldly power with God's power. It's not about our arrogance or about our physical strength. It's not about our bitterness. Here's how Zechariah sums up this concept so well in Zechariah 4, 6. Uh, It says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What can we learn from the first century church? from Stephen who was willing to say, forgive them, Lord. 
Psalm 90 has a quote at the end where it says, establish the work of our hands. And uh, I just want to encourage you to work in God's strength, whatever kind of work you're doing, not to, to do this work in a transactional way. Uh, we're going to sing in a moment. If we don't, if you don't build it, we labor in vain. Without your spirit, we stand with no strength. I know my life is passing away, but the work, the works of your hands are what will remain. I heard a preacher speak this week in person, and I, I just was amazed at his humility, but he had this one phrase that I want to leave with you. He said, many of us are doing such hard work at a frenetic pace, and we're trying to do large things famously as fast as possible. And then he says, the problem is, is that most things that truly matter in life require us to cultivate small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. And spiritual power doesn't come except from the Father himself, from Jesus himself and being before the, the face of Jesus, who has already paid it all. To God be the glory. Holy Trinity, may our church be shaped by weakness, by proclamation, by humility, and by repentance. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we don't want to judge other people. We don't want to point our fingers at other people. We have our own problems. But Lord, may we be humble. May we dare to be weak, not to be uh, fearful, but to be courageous and yet weak at the same time like Stephen was. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.